Here's a top move for hiring a divorce attorney. See how they look and handle themselves on video or audio. Chances are that's them at their best with editing, setup, and multiple takes. The courtroom is live. Mediation is live. Make sure your divorce lawyer is going to make you look good. At Trendley Kramer Law, we handle family law and divorce. TK Law, onefirmforlife.com. Thanks for listening, as always. Well, my name is Sandman, and I'll be your guide through this strange realm of ghosts, cryptids, UFOs, aliens, conspiracy theories, and other unsolved mysteries that I like to call para-reality. Man, it is a beautiful spring night out tonight, yet here I am in the secret bunker, spending my evening with you sand fans. But once I'm through, I'm going to be going outside and enjoying the weather just a little bit anyway before calling it quits for the evening. Maybe spend a little bit of QT with Mrs. Sandman. Never know. Sometimes she likes to do that. Sometimes I do too. Well, tonight's episode is the third and final episode in a three-part series on the Yuba County Five. On the last two episodes, I told you a little about the boys, as they were called, and their mental disabilities, the trip that they took, and their disappearance. I've also taken a look at some of the evidence that was left behind and discussed my primary suspect, Joseph Shans. And tonight, I'll finish up by going over my top six theories of what happened to the boys. Now, I want you to keep in mind that everything that I've discussed in the previous two episodes, along with what I'm about to discuss tonight, does not in any way cover the entire story, present the complete evidence in the case, or go over all the suspects. Doing that would literally take an entire season. So what I did was condense everything down into three manageable episodes that basically tell you the heart of the story, the the meat of the story, as they say. And as I said, laying everything all out would take an entire season, and there are podcasts out there who do exactly that. If you want to get 
a more in-depth investigation of the Yuba County Five, I suggest that you just do a Google search because there are a couple of good podcasts about it out there that have actually, like I said, devoted entire seasons to the Yuba County Five, and they go in a lot more into a deep dive than I have on this podcast here. Uh, I've only done, this is my third episode, so there's just no way I can do a complete and total um, deep dive into everything that has happened and the entire disappearance investigation, lay out all the evidence, talk about all the suspects. There's just no way I can do that in three episodes in a deep dive. So like I said, what I'm doing is I am presenting to you the... um, the heart of the story, the meat of the story, enough to get you enough information so that you know a little about it and can be a little bit more uh, informed or knowledgeable when you do your own investigation or do your own research or listen to those other podcasts out there that are devoted completely to the Yuba County Five. If you haven't heard parts one and two, I'm going to suggest that you stop listening to this episode right now and go back and listen to part one and part two so you'll be caught up because the stuff in this episode is not going to make any sense unless you've heard the first two parts. So you have been warned. Once again, I'm going to tell you, if you have not heard parts one and two of the Yuba County Five, probably be a good idea to stop this podcast episode right now and go back and listen to parts one and part two so you'll be caught up. That way you'll understand what I'm about to discuss in this third and final part of my summer series, which is the Yuba County Five. And of course, to learn more, you'll have to turn on, tune in, and find out. But now it is email time. One of my favorite times of the podcast. So this is another short and sweet email. This actually is, this actually comes from YouTube once again. I think the last couple of um, uh, emails that I've answered have come off of YouTube. So just keeping up with the trend here. This comes from Seth via YouTube, and it's very short and sweet. It says, love your stuff, man. It's really entertaining. Well, thanks, Seth. I really appreciate it. Uh, I do um, uh, take pride in presenting uh, my topics in a way that I think is an, a non-traditional way that most people don't take their their podcast in, in the, my direction. I, what I like to do is uh, I, I'm what I call an open-minded skeptic. So just because someone says something or just because there's a, a theory out there doesn't mean I'm going to believe it. I like to do my own research and and form my own opinions, and that's part of why I do this podcast, besides the fact that I love doing podcasts. um, I like to take the evidence that I find, present it to you in an unbiased way. I just lay out the evidence, here it is, and then I let you make up your own mind, or I give you enough information that that you can begin your own research. I never have a preset agenda on this podcast where I come in believing a certain thing and I feel that my job is to make you believe the same thing that I do. And on the flip side, I don't come into it 
you know, not believing something and view it as my job is to dissuade you from doing your own research or dissuade you from, from your beliefs. I always like to present the evidence and say, here it is. This is what I have found. This is the results of my investigation or my research. Now, here it is to you. You take that and you do what you will with it. So I think that is the best way to approach something like this. And Seth, thank you once again for your uh, comment. I really appreciate it. If you are listening to this podcast and you have a comment that you'd like to get back on the air, just uh, send me an email, sandman at parareality.com. That's sandman at parareality.com. Or if you uh, listen to it from YouTube, like what Seth does, just comment on YouTube. Uh, Those are the two good ways to get in touch with me if you want to uh, sandman at parareality.com or comment on YouTube if you happen to listen on YouTube and, and it doesn't have to be a, a good comment it can be you know you suck or I disagree with uh, your findings or I think uh, such and such would be such a you know a good topic for the show anything that you want uh, feel free to email me it doesn't have to be all praise and and, and all that because I, I, I like to hear you know from people who think I could do a better job or have an idea for a topic. I always love to hear from you guys. If you have an idea for a topic that I haven't touched or maybe one of your favorite episodes that you'd like for me to go back and uh, do an updated episode on. So send me that email, sandman at parareality.com. And now that I've gone over that, here's this. Parareality is a proud member of the Straight Up Strange podcast network. To learn more about all the awesome podcasts that are members of the Straight Up Strange family, go to straightupstrange.com and get strange. Hey, how would you like to be an agent of chaos? What is chaos? It's the knowledgeable apprentices of Sandman, and that's what I call my Patreon account members. I'm looking for new agents, and I'd love it if you'd sign up to become one. There are three levels of agents and all are extremely affordable, $5 a month or less. Each level offers exclusive content along with the ability to help create podcast episodes and even the chance to be a guest or a co-host. To learn more, head on over to patreon.com slash parareality. 100% of the proceeds from Patreon goes back into producing quality content for this podcast. You are listening to the Parareality Podcast, your information source for conspiracy theories, UFOs, the paranormal, and all things unexplained. New episodes drop the first Friday of every month at 8 o'clock p.m. Central U.S. time. Listen on your favorite podcast station. Turn on, tune in, and find out. If you wish to change, you must first lift the veil of ignorance that has been cast over your eyes. Only then will you see the true power of the universe. So, let's wind this thing down, this part three of my three-part series, and let's talk about the theories of what happened or who did it to the Yuba County Five. Now, like I said a few minutes ago, there are six theories that I'm going to present here, and this by no means are all the theories that are out there. These are just 
what I think are probably the best theories to present to you to give you enough evidence to be knowledgeable about the case. So in part one of this three-part series, I talked about the boys, who they were, um, their their disabilities, their mental disabilities, their love of basketball, what bonded them, and the night of their disappearance, and a little bit about how their abandoned vehicle was found. And in part two, I also talked about the search as well and the, and the, and the discovery of the bodies. And in part two, I presented a little bit of the evidence to you. Like I said, this by no means is an all-inclusive thing. It did not present 100% of the evidence, but it presented enough for you to be knowledgeable about it. So I presented to you the evidence, and my primary suspect in the disappearance of the boys, a Mr. Joseph Shans, and I talked a little bit about him, his background as far as what he said was happening on the night that they disappeared and a little about his totally unbelievable story. So now we're going to wind this thing down in part three with my top six theories as to what happened to the boys. So beginning with number one, obviously, if you hadn't figured it out by now, you should, is that uh, I think that Joseph Shans did it. Now, We've already discussed his questionable background and his reputation, but what isn't clear at all is why he would do it. What reason would he have? Now, as I said last episode, he did have a history of selling drugs. So could it be that the boys ran up on a drug deal that he uh, was part of? Did they witness that? And he decided that uh, he didn't want to go to jail or get in trouble with the law, so he did away with them. He forced them up that mountain. Um, don't know. It, 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 we know that the boys went to that, that ball game. And we know they went to one particular store that was the convenience store that was trying to close up shop for the night. They were the last customers and they bought some, some junk food supplies. So they could have run into Sean's in the parking lot of the basketball game. They could have run into him in the parking lot at the convenience store. This is Steve Kramer. Let me tell you a business secret. There are sketch companies out there selling awards. Make sure the awards earned by your lawyer are from respected organizations. At Trendley Kramer Law, our lawyers have been recognized by Orlando Magazine Best Lawyers, Florida Trend Legal Elite, Super Lawyers, and listed in U.S. News as a best law firm for years. We've earned the awards that can't be bought. Trendley Kramer, TK Law, onefirmforlife.com. Maybe they saw something that they shouldn't have, and he or somebody else, or maybe he collaborated with somebody else. Maybe they decided uh, that the best thing they could do was um, get rid of those kids. Um, now, remember the car was, when they found it, was in pretty pristine condition 
for it having driven on a dirt road with a bunch of ruts and, and gullies and stuff in it up the side of a mountain at night in the middle of a snowstorm, particularly someplace that those boys weren't familiar with. Remember, it was like two and a half hours in the opposite direction of what their home was. So that would indicate that maybe somebody else drove that car up there, someone who was familiar with the area. And then maybe for whatever reason, the boys escaped that person, and that's how they wound up deep in the woods up the side of that mountain um, in the ranger shack. So maybe it wasn't Joseph Shans who drove them up there. Maybe it was an accomplice of his. And it's also very possible that Sean's drove them up there as well. Another thing is that uh, Sean's daughter went to that uh, institute where the boys played basketball at. And it's very well possible that they could have known her. Um, the boys went to this one um I guess you could call it um, the institute is not a a good word. They went they went to this place called Gateway, which was a, it was a place that was designed to help people with mental handicaps. Um, it, it wasn't a school or an institute. It was it was basically like um, just a, a program that helped people with mental health disabilities. And we know that Joseph Sean's daughter also went to that place. So it's very well possible that one or all of those boys knew her. And maybe one or all of them liked her. And maybe uh, Sean's didn't like that. Maybe he was very protective of his daughter. and Maybe he wanted uh, to make sure that one or, or more of those Kids didn't um, bother her again. Or or maybe, remember, they had mental handicaps, so maybe one or more of them did something that was unwanted towards her. And I'm not saying they raped her or sexually assaulted her, but maybe they did something that make, made her feel uncomfortable. Maybe they approached her and asked her out um, or said something else that made her feel uncomfortable and she went home and she told her dad and her dad being the very protective father that he is and the the shady person the drug dealer that he was was like you know what I'm not going to let these kids get away with making my daughter feel uncomfortable so I'm going to I'm going to do away with this one kid but he couldn't do away with just the one kid because there were five of them there so he had to do away with all of them that's it, that's a little far fetched but it is a possibility so my main suspect is still my number one. He's going to remain my number one, and that's Joseph Shans. We just don't know what his connection exactly with the boys were because his story that he uh, gave about maybe seeing them up on the side of that mountain while he was having a heart attack, spending the night in his car, and then traipsing through the snow the next morning and blah, blah, blah. It just didn't make sense. And if you want to know that whole story, if you haven't listened to part two where I discuss it, you really need to, or if you just need a refresher on your memory of what happened, you really need to re-listen to part two because I'm not going to go back over it in this part. So the second theory 
that's a very popular theory, is that Gary Mathias himself did it. Now, if you remember, Gary Mathias was one of the boys. He was the one that probably had the most um, intelligence level, the greatest intelligence level out of all of them. He was the one that had some, uh, uh, his mental problem was that he suffered from schizophrenia, but as long as he took his medication, he was fine. So some believe that Matthias, for whatever reason, somehow forced the boys up that mountain, causing their ultimate demise, and then realizing what he had done, escaped into the wilderness. And that accounts for the reason that his body was never found. They found his shoes, but they never found his body. So he's the only one out of all of them that remains unaccounted for. So it's also very possible that when they did get up there to that mountain, that, that um, forest ranger shack in that, on the mountain, that uh, after the medication that he had in his system wore off, that he, for lack of a better phrase, went crazy and um, you know attacked the boys and, and killed them, or they were somehow scared of him, and he ran... Um, they ran away and out into the woods and froze to death. Um, but that doesn't explain how they got up there. So maybe Matthias took him up there himself. Maybe he had some sort of, maybe he had stopped taking his medication and had some sort of mental break, some sort of snap, and that he somehow forced him up there, forced him to drive there. Um, that is a very, very popular theory is that he did it, and that's only because he was his body was the only one that wasn't found, number one. And number two, he had the most intelligence out of all of them. If anyone could have forced him to go up there, it probably could have been him. But they were so close, the five of them, they did everything together. They were collectively known as the boys. Um, that's what their families called them. All the families knew each other. They hung around each other all the time. They played on a basketball team together. They seemed to be a very close-knit band of brothers. So I don't know why Gary Matthias would take them and kill them, force them up the side of that mountain. To me, that just doesn't make any sense. This brings us to the number three theory which is that a man named Alan Martin did it. Now, I did not talk about Alan Martin when I was talking about the suspects, so I'm going to pause for a minute. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Alan Martin and what I know of him. So a couple of months after the bodies had been found, a man named Alan Martin stopped by the Matthias' residence, and he apparently had this really guilty conscious on him and went on to tell the Matthias family a story about the night that the boys disappeared. He said that he'd been with a group of friends that stopped the boys on the bridge near the Orville Dam. And one of the men started slapping Jackie Hewitt to hear to hear him whine and, and, and moan. Now, it was well-known fact that Jackie 
would start to make like a, a guttural whining sound whenever he was scared or stressed out or distressed in any way. So maybe, you know, this is a plausible uh, story here is that this guy knew about that and he had been to the ball game, had been drinking with his friends and decided to, uh, you know, have some fun with these kids and let's make Jackie Hewitt, you know, make his noises. Now, this apparently angered Matthias, and he basically just launched himself at the man that was harassing Jackie, and that caused the rest of Alan's group to jump on Matthias. And there was a man, according to Alan, according to um, Alan Martin, there was a man by the name of Glenn Baker who was the person who, after this fight, drove Jack Madruga's car up the mountain to where it was abandoned. Now, it's not clear as to what happened after that, but Matthias's sister, Tammy, said that she assumes that when the car was driven up that road, the boys were all inside and at one point were ordered to get out of the car. And once out of the car, they were threatened or frightened by somebody and they took off running into the freezing woods. Now, this is what I can find out about Alan Martin is that he went up there to the Matthias family, told them this story, but I cannot find out if when he told the story, he told about how the boys got up the side of the mountain or if he knew anything about that. Apparently the only thing that was bothering him was that they were picking on these mentally handicapped kids, and they got in a fight. So maybe he had such a guilty conscience about that that he just needed to get it off his chest, or maybe he was too scared to tell the family about the rest of the story. I don't know. I can't find out much information about it. I'm sure it's out there. It's just that I couldn't. So if you can find that out, good luck. I suggest that you uh, you know, do your own research on that. The number four theory is that some mysterious pastor did it. There is a relative of the Matthias family whose name was Jessica, and she claims that a local man who apparently is still living in the area is responsible for the boy's disappearance. Now, this man, this pastor, had known uh, Gary Matthias and his family very well and had an extensive criminal record involving drugs and violence. However, he turned his life around sometime in the 80s and has since gone on to become a pastor. Now, this kind of ties back in with my number one suspect, which was or is Joseph Shans. So remember, Shans was a um, drug dealer, and this unnamed pastor is or was at the time involved in the drug trade. So remember when I was talking about it's possible that Sean's had an accomplice, that maybe the boys saw him uh, making an illegal drug deal? Well, this man could possibly very well be the accomplice that I was talking about. I don't know his name. Once again, I could not find out his name. Um, just from the research that I did. Now, I did not listen to every episode of the two in-depth podcasts 
that uh, talked about that I found that talked about uh, the Yuba County Five. So maybe those people have uh, an answer that I don't. Um, once again, I, I'm not claiming that I am presenting to you all of the evidence. I'm not presenting to you all of the theories, and I'm not presenting to you all of the suspects. I'm just giving you a, an overview of everything so that you can be well-informed to hopefully understand what you're doing if you decide to investigate this mystery yourself. So it's very well possible that this pastor and um, Joseph Shans were accomplices in this. Now, I have no proof of that. That is just my personal theory, but to me, it makes a lot of sense since we have a suspect, the number one suspect in my opinion, who was known to deal in drugs, and then we have this mysterious person who has since turned his life around and become a pastor who was a criminal and was involved in drug trafficking or the drug trade, should I say. So it makes sense that the two of them could possibly have been involved in this together, but I have no evidence. It's just a theory. The number five theory is what I call the mysterious phone call. Now, around about three weeks after the boys went missing, a Yuba City woman named Debbie Lynn Reese got a phone call it was actually not just one, it was a series of mysterious phone calls. The first call came on uh, March the 15th of 1978, and the caller said, I know where the missing five men are, and then immediately hung up. This is Steve Kramer. Let me tell you a business secret. There are sketch companies out there selling awards. Make sure the awards earned by your lawyer are from respected organizations. At Trendley Kramer Law, our lawyers have been recognized by Orlando Magazine Best Lawyers, Florida Trend Legal Elite, Super Lawyers, and listed in U.S. News as a best law firm for years. We've earned the awards that can't be bought. Trendley Kramer, TK Law, onefirmforlife.com. Hey, you, with the shopping cart, it's us, Leafy Greens. Leafy what? Greens, delicious, locally grown leafy green vegetables. I'm Romaine. This is arugula. Hello. Spinach. Ahoy. Escarole and endive. Bonjour. Right. I put you guys on my sandwiches. Aww. We're more than just a sandwich layer. We add crunch to your salads. Flavor to soups. And a little je ne sais quoi to your dishes. That is... If you let us. <laughs> for meals with personality, look for the sunny Fresh from Florida logo where you shop. The second call came the next day on March 16th, and this time the person that called said, I need help because I really hurt those boys bad. And then when Debbie asked, who did you hurt? His reply was, don't play dumb with me, and he hung up. And then the third and final call came the next day on March 17th, and the caller said, those five guys are all dead. Debbie said, they're all dead. And he replied, they're all dead, and then hung up, and he never called her again. Now, it's unknown who this person was or why he chose Debbie Lynn Reese to be the recipient of his phone calls, but it sounds to me like that is a prank 
phone call. It was probably someone that she knew, or I don't know if she had children or what. Maybe it was just some sicko that was dialing a random number. Back then, there was no caller ID or caller lookup or anything like that. You know, uh, could have been just a, a prank caller, someone that uh, her, maybe if she had kids, maybe it was uh, someone her kids knew. Uh, you know, that theory to me, uh, is interesting only in the fact that there was someone that called up another person and said, I know where they are, I heard them bad, you know, but why he would just randomly call someone that he didn't know is beyond me. And finally, we get down to the number six theory, which is paranormal causes. Now, I can't do a... Uh, episode about the disappearance of these five men without having a little bit of a paranormal touch to it because, after all, the name of the podcast is Parareality, and we deal with some pretty weird paranormal things on this show. So there are some theories that are floating around online that that say that um, this could have been the result of some sort of paranormal phenomenon like a UFO or Sasquatch or something like that causing the the boys, the group, to flee in a panic. Now, if you remember, this thing is no, also known as uh, the American Dateloff Pass incident. And the Dateloff Pass is a Russian incident that occurred back in the 50s where a group of friends were um, hiking up the side of a mountain in the snow in the middle of winter and uh, never returned home. And a search party was sent for out for them. When they found them, their tents were all pretty much ripped to shreds, had been cut like from the inside to give these people an escape. The bodies were found, uh, some with missing eyes and teeth, others all mangled up with broken bones and all this crap. And, and one of the leading theories is that uh, a Yeti, attacked the camp. So Sasquatch and Yeti are supposed to be cousins, so to speak. So there is a, a theory out there that a Sasquatch attacked the boys and killed them or attacked them and caused them to flee up, you know, uh, out in the woods on the side of that mountain or that uh, a UFO abducted them. Now, here's the problem that I have with the Sasquatch theory. Number one, it doesn't explain how the car got two and a half hours in the opposite direction from their home up the side of that mountain that night. doesn't explain that. Sasquatch did not get in their car and drive them to that location. Sasquatch wasn't waiting out in the parking lot at the store where they bought their, their junk food at and scared them and made them drive two and a half hours in the opposite direction up the side of a mountain and then get out of the car and run off. So... If there was a Sasquatch that was involved, okay, but that doesn't explain how or why the boys got up the side of the mountain that night. And a UFO theory, to me, is a little bit more plausible than a Sasquatch theory. And the reason for that is because we know when people get abducted by aliens, that there's a whole bunch of missing time, and sometimes they wind up, when they are quote-unquote returned, they wind up in a location that's not 
where they were when they were they were taken. They don't they're they they are they're abducted. Their memories are like wiped, and the next thing you know, they're waking up in a totally different location from the last thing that they remember. So that is a possibility that that happened to them. However, the taking of a whole car, um, I kind of have heartburn with. I, I, I've never run across or heard of uh, an alien abduction theory where a whole car full of people too, by the way, was abducted and then dropped in a totally and completely different location. After all, it part of the whole thing about them abducting people is to return them back the way they found them so that they don't question anything. They just have a little bit of missing time that they can't explain. I just don't get how a, how a UFO is going to take a, a whole car full of people and then put them in a different location when it just totally does not fit with the whole M.O. of alien abductions. But it does, if you're going to look at the paranormal aspect of it, it does uh, make more sense than the Sasquatch angle, in my opinion. So, in conclusion here, if the boys had indeed been forced up the mountain at gunpoint or by some other threat, who was the person that ordered them to do that? Could Joseph Sean's sighting of a second vehicle, possibly a red truck parked behind Jack's Montego, explain how the boys may have been followed up the Orville-Quincy Highway? Could the boys have been following the second vehicle until they got the Montego stuck in the snow? The boys had some sort of reason to go up that mountain. Either they were told to follow someone under some sort of duress or threat, or they were in the process of of fleeing from someone, or maybe they were just plain lost. Now, I'm assuming that Jack Madruga was the one that drove the Montego up that road because it was his car, it was his prized possession, He never let anyone drive it but him, and also his car keys were found in his pants pocket when his body was discovered. However, it's still hard to explain why he would have left it with the driver, the car, why he would have left it with the driver's side window partially rolled down if he hadn't planned on coming back to the car in a short amount of time. Now, that's something that Jack Madruga simply would never do unless he was under duress, unless he was trying to get out of there quickly. Because remember, that car was his prized possession, and he never let anyone get behind the wheel except for him. Now, Weir, who was found in the trailer, in that ranger shack, he was alive in there for weeks and he would have needed somebody to take care of him because, remember, his feet were gangrenous. They had gotten frostbitten so bad that they had gangrene. This would have made him, without proper treatment, extremely sick, and he would have needed somebody to take care of him. So Jackie, Jack, and Bill wouldn't have been capable of doing that because their mental abilities 
their intelligence level, if you will, weren't up to that task. Now, with the authorities believing that Jack Madruga and Bill Sterling had succumbed to the elements before they could make it to the forest trailer, only Jackie Hewitt would have been left to care for Ted Weir if Gary wasn't there. And Jackie wasn't able to care for himself, and he wouldn't have been able to take care of someone else. So the boys were more than likely forced up that mountain, in my opinion, but there's no evidence to prove if they were or were not. All we know is that they went up there. And since we know that they were up there, we know that there was somebody else up there by his own admission, which was Joseph Sean's. Now, there are people out there who honestly don't think that Sean's had anything directly to do with this. There's people who think that he was just drunk because he was a known alcoholic, and maybe he was just on one of his regular drinking binges and was out driving drunk and had stopped out the mountain lodge and then got turned around. Because remember, the lodge is only eight miles from where that Montego was found. So if Sean's had taken, let's say, a left instead of a right, he could have easily wound up the side of that mountain where he said he was. And maybe he got stuck up there or he fell asleep in a drunken stupor when he was waiting for help. You know, there are those out there who say there's a good chance that he did, in fact, see the boys and the car, but he wasn't in any mental state of mind to really be sure of anything. And let's also remember that he was a pathological liar. So we can't really believe his story just for what it is anyway. We can't take that with a grain of salt because he was not only a a person who dealt with drugs and who was an alcoholic and tended to drink a lot, but he was also a pathological liar. So I don't know why people would think that he didn't have anything directly to do with this whenever his story doesn't add up and he has, I don't know, he has this reputation for being a criminal. Um, So I think the fact that people are poo-pooing the idea that he had anything directly to do with this, I think they need to stop and think again. Now, I know, or I do think, that the boys followed the snowcat tracks. Remember I said that there was a snowcat that had been up there that plowed uh, an area, and I do think that the boys followed the snowcat tracks to the trailer. Now, what happens with a, with a snowcat is the snowcat tracks compact the snow a lot, and it makes it much easier to walk on and would have been the easiest way for the boys to move through the wilderness, especially at night, in the dark, and they didn't have a flashlight. Now, Madruga and Sterling, remember their bodies were found between the trailer and the car, and the investigators suspect that they died while they were walking to the trailer, which is entirely possible. We don't have any evidence of the two of them being actually in the trailer, So that's a distinct possibility. Now, there are also two other scenarios. 
The first is that they made it to the trailer and decided to go back to the car when Weir started to get worse, knowing that the car would be the fastest way to get help. But with all the snowstorms that had gone on, they would naturally have had a hard time finding their way back. Now, Madruga could have insisted on getting back to the car sooner because it was his car, maybe even that same night when they succumbed to the weather. Hewitt was found really close to the trailer in another direction, and he might have tried to follow Madruga and have not known which direction that uh, Madruga went in, and he just simply got lost. What we do know is that someone had to have been with Weir at least for a little bit. With 36 ration meals eaten, requiring the use of the P-38 can opener, the presence of Matthias's shoes, it's very likely that Matthias was one of these people. Now, if we assume if we, that just Matthias and Weir made it, eating three meals a day, they would have six days of food. Matthias would likely know that rationing food would be important because of his military training. And he would have also avoided lighting a fire if he thought that someone was after them. So maybe Hewitt, Weir, and Matthias were waiting at the trailer, waiting for Sterling and Madruga to come back with help, but when they didn't and the food supply began to run low and Matthias began to get more paranoid because his medication was wearing off. The key to successful Valentine's Day gift giving is to show your Valentine that you truly get them. You need something personal, as personal as their favorite cocktail, which is why the Bartesian cocktail maker is the perfect Valentine's Day gift. The Bartesian is a sleek countertop device that makes over 50 bar quality cocktails at the touch of a button, including your Valentine's favorites. If they love margaritas, Bartesian can make over 10 kinds. If they like whiskey, they can choose an old fashioned one night and a sidecar the next. Plus, your Valentine can choose their desired strength, from mocktail to strong. And not only does it make your Valentine's favorite cocktails, but it makes yours too. Skip the overpriced dinners and impersonal gifts. Instead, treat your Valentine and yourself to a present you'll both enjoy long past February 14th. Bartesian, order yours today and receive free shipping. Visit bartesian.com slash cocktail to shop now. That's B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com slash cocktail. Hosting a watch party for the big game can be a blast. But between all the shopping, serving, and cleanup, you need your A-game to get everything done and still enjoy it. Introducing the Bartesian, the sleek countertop device that freshly mixes cocktails at the touch of a button. Think of it as your all-around MVP that can QB the bar and make every cocktail a winner. With Bartesian, there's no stocking the bar ahead of time or missing a big play to mix drinks. And with over 50 different cocktails to choose from, all made with real juices, extracts, and bitters, your guests get their favorite cocktail at their preferred strength. Regardless of who wins, you'll still have the Bartesian on your home roster, making you the biggest winner of all. Bartesian. Order yours today and receive free shipping. Visit bartesian.com slash cocktail to shop now. That's B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N dot com slash cocktail. Maybe Matthias, maybe he just set off after them. Maybe he went to go hit 
get help himself, thereby leaving Hewitt to take care of Ted Weir. I haven't read anything about any food or ration cans being in the bed with Weir, which likely means that someone was feeding him while he was there and that there was there was still food. But we do know that he lost somewhere between 80 and 100 pounds, meaning that he that while he was alive, he would have gone hungry for some time. And if Hewitt had been left in charge of Ted Weir, maybe he, he may have he may have struggled trying to determine what to do. He wouldn't know how to light a fire or even to look for other food. And when Weir passed away or looked like he had died, Hewitt might have wrapped him in the sheets or Hewitt wrapped Weir when he determined that he needed to go get help and find the others with the idea that it would keep Ted Weir warm. And we know that Hewitt was the most intellectually challenged out of the group of boys and that he couldn't read. He may not have thought about checking the closets in the trailer for things like blankets or additional clothing, or he may have been too scared to do that, thinking he could get in trouble. If there were any signage, he wouldn't have been able to have read it. So what happened to Matthias? He's the only one that wasn't discovered. Well, I personally think that he died somewhere on that mountain. That park where he died in is massive, overgrown, and it's full of wildlife. And if he had wandered off in a direction that wasn't very frequently traveled, he may never be found. Unfortunately, we'll probably never know what happened to the boys or why or how they or why they got up that mountain. What we do know is that they somehow made it to that mountain. They made it to the ranger shack for some unknown reason. The families are left without much closure, and they, just like the rest of us, are continuing to seek out answers to riddles that are probably never going to be solved. So that about does it for this episode, and that concludes my three-part series on the Yuba County Five. Like I said, this is in no way considered to be all-inclusive of the evidence, the suspects, the story, this is this three-part episode is just enough so you can be well-informed and knowledgeable about it. And I suggest if you want to know more about it that you do your own research. Do you like being scared? Does the feeling of your throat tightening fear leaving you unable to scream exciting? If the answer to these questions is yes, then you should listen to Scared to Death, Stories of Suspense, Science Fiction, and Horror. Scared to Death airs the third Friday of every month at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Tune in for the fright of your life. Are you fed up with the way things are going in the world? 
Have you always wanted to say whatever was on your mind without having to listen to someone bitch about it or suffer any repercussions? Well, me too. That's why I created the Set It Off podcast. I'm sick and tired of the stupidity that's going on around here, and I'm going to let everybody know how I feel about it. So hop on board this train and fasten your seatbelt because I'm about to set it off. Set It Off can be heard on your favorite podcast station. New episodes drop on the fourth Friday of every month at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. You never know what I'm going to say next. I hope that you enjoyed tonight's episode of Parareality. If you want to leave a comment about it or anything else about the podcast, let me tell you how you can get in touch with me because there are a few different ways and here they are. The best, quickest, easiest way to do it is just to email me. My email address is sandman at parareality.com. That's sandman at parareality.com. Or you can find me on the official Parareality Facebook page. Just go to facebook.com slash sandman.parareality. You can post a message on my wall or slide right into my DMs. Send me a direct message. If you have a Twitter or Instagram account, you can follow me on both of those. My username is Radio. That's at Radio, both on Instagram and Twitter. Finally, you can always call the podcast and leave a message on the voicemail. Call me here in the secret bunker, 615-692-1170. That number is, once again, 615-692-1170. Leave me a message on the voicemail. That's the direct line here to the secret bunker. But I want you to remember this. If you decide to leave me a message, that gives me permission to play your comment back on the podcast. So if you do not want that to happen, you'll need to let me know somewhere in your message. Now, I'm always looking for interesting stories for the podcast. So if you've got a story that you'd like to get on the show, tell it to me over the voicemail. There's a three-minute time limit. So if you run out of time, call back and pick up where you left off. So those are the ways you can get in touch with me, Sandman, here on Parareality. Email me, sandman at parareality.com. Find me on Facebook, sandman.parareality. That's the official Parareality radio page on Facebook. Leave me a message on my DMs, post to my wall. Or follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Radio. That's at Radio on both Instagram or Twitter. And finally, call me here in the secret bunker and leave me a message, 615-692-1170. Also, please don't forget to visit parareality.com. That's a place we can keep up on the latest paranormal news from all around the world because I've got an entire page of the website devoted to paranormal news, and that content is updated pretty much all, almost daily. It's in the Paranews section, and you can shop in the Parareality Radio store while you're there reading about your favorite paranormal news. You can watch some of the terrible videos that I've made for the, the show over the years, and you can listen to the podcast archives there in the archives section. I've got tons of audio on the website from the various incarnations of Parareality throughout the years, along with my other podcasts, Set It Off and Scared to Death. You can find all of that content for free on the archive section of the website. That's parareality.com. Make sure you check it out. Parareality can be heard on your favorite 
podcast station, just search for Hero Reality. That's your keyword. If you have a smart speaker, you can listen there too. If you've got any of the uh, podcast skills activated on your device, you just say, hey, play the Para Reality podcast. And I've also got a YouTube account where you can listen to the podcast there too because I upload all of the uh, audio for the podcast up there on YouTube because people actually listen to it from YouTube. So uh, it's got not only audio, but it's got some great videos like UFO and paranormal documentaries, a little news segment that I did a few times called News of the Strange. It's also got those terrible videos that I did on my very short-lived internet TV show, which was horrible, but I put those up there for your pleasure. So to find the channel, just go to youtube.com slash user slash parareality1. That's the number one. Not spelled out, just the number one. So parareality1 on YouTube. Now, if you remember, I kind of disappeared for a little bit over the summer, and I told you that I was going to tell you what I had been up to. So, um, yeah, I think now is the time to let you know where I, I was kind of hiding and what I was doing. So, guys, um, I got uh, an invitation. I got called up out of the blue one day by my good friend, Tony Pratt, who has a local uh, television show here in the Nashville area. Um and it's called Mystery Us. And my friend Tony has gotten involved with a brand new television network called Nashville Country Television. It is a streaming-only television network. It's available on just about every streaming service that you can find out there, most specifically Roku and uh, Amazon Prime. And he started a brand new show for that network called the Weird News Network. So I am Mr. Pratt's co-host, and we take some paranormal videos from the World Wide Web. We take those videos, we kind of break them down, give our two cents worth, our opinions on them, and uh, make a determination on whether or not it's uh, paranormal in nature or not. Um, We also do a couple of other things. We we talk about some different paranormal-type subjects, but it's mainly where we are just dissecting paranormal videos that we find on the Internet. So um, if you have Roku or if you have Amazon Prime, download the Nashville Country TV app where you can watch the Weird News Network. It's an on-demand show that's available. You can watch it anytime. And it made its debut last month in August. And we are very proud of what we've been doing. We've shot several episodes for that. It's uh, up and running on Weird News Network on the Nashville Country television app for Roku and Amazon Prime and all of that. Um, If you've got a paranormal clip that you want to send in to the show, just send it to me, sandman at parareality.com. It can be a 10-minute long video. It can be a 10-second long video. It can be any length that you want as long as you can email it to me and I can download it. Let me know what it is that you filmed, the location, and when. 
and we will do our best to get it on the air. So that's kind of what I did on my break was I started filming the Weird News Network with Mr. Tony Pratt, and I'm very, very thankful for him to, for, to him for calling me and asking me to be his co-host on that television show. Now, it's not anything that's major like, you know, Paranormal Caught on Camera or any of those other type shows or, or you know, Jack Osborne's uh, Fright Club, uh, whatever he does with the the Ghost Brothers Fright Club. It's not anything that's uh, popular like that, but it is something that a little project that he and I have had the privilege of working on together. Uh, uh, he had the privilege of, of being asked to join that network uh, thanks to his work here locally in Nashville. And uh, I was privileged for him to call me up out of the blue and say, hey, I need a co-host, and I couldn't think of anyone better than you. So once again, Weird News Network, hosted by Tony Pratt and myself, is available on streaming services such as Roku and Amazon Prime on the Nashville Country Television app. Feel free to download it so you can watch our little TV show, Weird News Network. Everyone, the next episode of Parareality is going to drop on September the 23rd at 8 o'clock p.m. Central U.S. time. So make sure you turn on, tune in, and find out. I hope that this podcast opens up your mind to new ways of thinking, expands your consciousness, and produces a change in the way you see the world. If you wish to change, you must lift the veil of ignorance that has been cast over your eyes. Only then will you see the true power of the universe. I hope you have a wonderful weekend, a wonderful evening, and I will see you again on September 23rd. If you wish to change, you must first lift the veil of ignorance that has been cast over your eyes. Only then will you see the true power of the universe. What'd your mom pack you for lunch? Let's see, a turkey sandwich, chips, and... Oh, fresh from Florida strawberries. I'll trade you for some string cheese. Sure, here's my sandwich and my chips. No, I want the Florida strawberries. Seriously? No way. Uh, can I throw in my juice box? <laughs> you can throw in your lunch box. You're not getting my Florida strawberries. <laughs> Pack the snacks your kids want to eat. Look for the sunny, fresh from Florida logo where you shop. How about my new sneakers? Nope. These earbuds? Nope. My backpack? Nope.